Hey, how's it going, everybody? This is Chris. Welcome to episode 112 of x Last, where we are still in the very, very early stages of our X of Tens journey here. We're, uh, oh, we're at chapter two. So yeah, that is pretty early. Two of 22. Uh, today we're talking about X-Factor, volume four, number four, which had a November 2020 cover date. Story is called X of Swords, chapter two, written by Leo Williams with art by Carlos Gomez. Colors, Israel Silva. Letters, VCs, Joe Caramagna. Designs, Tom Muller, head of X's Hickman. Edits, Bisa White-Sabolsky. Cover price, $5. It's a little bit oversized. And this one went on sale September 30th of 2020. Now, I don't usually begin shows by saying, if you haven't listened to the previous episode, you probably should. But today, if you didn't listen to yesterday's episode, you probably should, because we are picking up right from X of Swords creation here. Now, Siren, she emerges back to Krakoa from the external gate, and she lets out a sonic cry for help. She's carrying a wounded Richter, who was uh, shot by an arrow at the end of last issue, and behind her, Angel is carrying a wounded Apocalypse. For what it's worth, Beast is also bouncing around, too. From here, double-page spread of creds, then our roll call, and it is another biggie. Siren, Richter, Apocalypse, Rachel, Summers, Rockslide, Polaris, Monet, Saturnine, Charles Xavier, Hope, Tempest, Egg, Proteus, Elixir, Magneto, Emma Frost. Now, the wounded are immediately taken to the healing gardens. Now, Richter seems to have already given up. That arrow that he was hit with has been pumping poison into him for a while now. Apocalypse demands that he fight the poison, but, I mean, how would one even begin to do that? I don't know. Polaris, Havoc, Monet, and Eunice emerge from the external gateway next, and Polaris is carrying the remains of Rockslide, who, if you recall, met with a horrible fate at the Blade of the Creepy Summoner. Now, Polaris, she kind of blames herself for this, uh, for not stepping in to save Rockslide before the Summoner cleaved him in two. Uh, She believes that she could have used her powers to stop this from happening. Now, whether or not that's true... Your guess is as good as mine. Point remains, Polaris feels guilty. Now, Cecilia Reyes is there to accept the patient. Back in other worlds, Saturnine decides that since, uh, well, she's already said her piece and also set the parameters for the upcoming contest of champions, that there's really no need for the external gate to be open. And so she closes it, which really ticks off the island of Krakoa, who begins a rumbling. Cypher tries to settle the island's tea kettle, and I suppose he eventually does, because the the earthquake stops. Next up, an info page all about the floating kingdom of Roma Regina, which is led by Roma. You remember her, right? You know, Siege Perilous, all that stuff. If not, read this page. 
Back to comics, and Rachel is forcibly plucked out of Polaris's mind by a gigantic Saturnine. You see, she was trying to get a little bit of insight as to what the hell's going on here. If you remember the end of X of Swords creation, Polaris has the skinny on all the stuff, right? The X of Swords, the upcoming contest. She's got all the prophecies locked away in her brain. Saturnine is not is not willing to let anyone else get involved, especially, you know, a mind reader like Rachel. So it's up to Lorna to solve the who's, what's, where's, when's, and why's of the prophecy. And you know, not for nothing, I'm happy that we're actually focusing on a member of X-Factor in this issue of X-Factor. That's not something we can always count on in crossovers, so this is a good thing. From here, we jump to the healing gardens where Richter is dying. Apocalypse tell the healer to, you know, heal Richter, but the healer refuses, knowing that Julio... Once he perishes, will be speedily resurrected. And I'm not sure I care for that attitude. And you know what? Apocalypse doesn't seem to either, because he begins to Darth Vader force choke the healer. Until Rachel pops in to intervene. She, uh, she enters into Apocalypse's mind, and inside Apocalypse's mind, it's as though he's being attacked by his original horseman all over again. He releases the choke on the poor old healer. Next up, info page about the Holy Republic of Fae, ruled by Merlin now spelled with an I instead of a Y. He's the father of Roma, and if you'd like to know more about him, hey, read this page. Next stop, the hatchery. Now, Professor X, he, he's always just sort of like trolling here where the five do their work, isn't he? He's just kind of there. Uh, and, and here he is again. He's approached by Polaris, who asks if there's any resurrection cue protocols as it pertains to, you know, casualties of war. And, uh... Are these casualties immediately bumped up to the head of the line, or what? We don't know. Xavier also doesn't know. I mean, in fairness, this isn't something they've ever had to think about just yet. Which, to me, seems a little bit like an oversight, doesn't it? Uh, You know, starting a nation, and not thinking about what might happen should there be an actual international conflict. Or, I suppose, an otherworldly conflict. You know, as, as much as an, as an oversight that that is, I like it because it's a good reminder that these are superheroes and not world leaders. You know, they are very much out of their element in this nation building. Really nice to see that they don't have all the answers. So, the professor gets a gander into Polaris's mind and sees the setup and betrayal of the creepy summoner and the horseman. He informs the five that Richter, who just succumbed in the healing gardens, and Rockslide will be resurrected immediately. As in, within the hour. And I... I didn't know they had that sort of technology. Neither did the five, it seems. They're pretty surprised, too. But they do as they're told. They do the thing. Bada-bing, Richter emerges from his gold ball, and everything seems okay. But then, Rockslide emerges, and everything goes all shades of crazy. Rockslide mumbles a bit. Then the professor is zapped by some cerebronic feedback, which knocks him out, and the five also go down. We get a glimpse at the other four cerebro cradles, one at the House of M, one at Summer House, one at the Point, and even the one at Mora's No Place, which actually features a cameo from the lady herself who we haven't seen in ages. Now, all of the cerebro helmets are going nuts, and the resurrection protocols are thrown offline. Back to the hatchery, something strange is going on with this newly born rock slide. It would appear as though he can't hold his pieces together. He is, you know, built of rock. Polaris apologizes over and over again. Remember, she blames herself for his passing in the first place. 
Rockslide manages to pull himself together, sorta. He looks very, very different than he had before. He's much thinner, with just his pieces of rubble just everywhere, and he's got this kind of a spindly rock body at this point. Polaris gives him the once-over and asserts that this isn't Rockslide, or at least the Rockslide that they know. Now, the five, they begin to stir, and they wonder what went wrong. And they immediately assume that it was them that messed up. They goofed up, and maybe they had a tainted bunch, or tainted batch, I should say, of eggs. And so, Elixir is asked to destroy them, and he does. So all the gold balls that are, you know, waiting for bodies or husks or whatever the hell it is, they're gone. Xavier wakes up, and and suddenly Cerebro comes back online. He sees the remains of the destroyed gold balls, and he just loses it. He demands answers from the five. Why would they do such a thing? Hope tells him that uh, they done did something weird here, because the rock slide they just brought back both is and isn't the rock slide that we knew. Xavier then turns to Richter, because since rock slide isn't Santo, how can we be sure that Richter is Julio? And it doesn't take Xavier long to realize that Richter is Richter, and, and I mean, how many times have I said the word Richter in the past 15 seconds? Now, the Five tries to think of how this might have happened, and Hope comes up with a theory. But first, an info page. This is a confidential memo regarding this, quote, non-standard resurrection. And it's more or less just a retelling of what we just saw, with an added notice that all resurrection protocols are now suspended until further notice. And it's signed off on by both Hope and Polaris. We jump over to the Quiet Council, where Hope shares her theory with the bigwigs. You see, Richter died, right, in the Healing Gardens, on Krakoa, on Earth. Rockslide, however, died in Otherworld. You dig? You're starting to get there? Now, as Otherworld is a place that can be described as a, quote, convergence of possibilities, it's kind of a roll of the dice to attempt to resurrect someone who died there. Dying there apparently forfeits one's identity. And so, while they can be brought back in body, like Rockslide sorta kinda was, it's not a true resurrection in the Dawn of X sense. So Rockslide, the Rockslide that we knew, Santo What's-His-Face, for all intents and purposes, has suffered a permanent death. Now let's stop for a second there. Now our upcoming contest of champions as far as I know, will be occurring in Otherworld, right? So it would seem that we finally got ourselves some stakes here. Any X-Men, any of the X-Men who'd perish in the battle, in the contest, will be dying permanent deaths. There are stakes here, and I'm totally on board with that. Someone who can't get on board with that is Emma Frost, who is absolutely beside herself that the X-Men have lost one of their youngest in such a way. She suggests that they call off Saturnine's tournament. Xavier says that really isn't an option at this time. Magneto turns to Polaris to find out how she's doing solving the prophecies that Saturnine dropped into her dome. And Lorna... well, Lorna ain't sure. And so, Magneto berates and humiliates her in front of the entire Quiet Council. He yells at her to do the work. Lorna drops the clump of rock slide that she'd been holding and begins to seize... She then goes into sort of a trance and starts speaking in riddles. The prophecy is coming to her. She comes to and realizes that she dropped the clump of Santo, picks it up, and, humiliated, she runs away. Next up, an info page, and it's another confidential memo. 
which is basically a quick and dirty of what we just heard. If one dies in Otherworld, it corrupts their cerebronic... Cerebronic? However I said that, back up. Upon resurrection, you never know what you're gonna get. It's an amalgamation of infinite possibilities. Back to comics, and we're over at the Healing Gardens. Magneto and Xavier are visiting with a recovering apocalypse, and uh, they're kind of giving him the I-told-you-so treatment. Xavier tells that he doomed them all by going outside the council. Magneto is somehow even more blunt with Ensabanoa. He's told that if he succumbs to his injuries, it'll be a while before he's resurrected. Because if you remember, all the gold balls are done busted. We shift scenes over to Polaris, who's just finished building something. But first, an info page, and it's a warning memo not to travel to Otherworld. But it's worded kind of softly. It's worded in such a way where Xavier, or whoever wrote this, is telling the mutants that... He's not telling the mutants that they can't travel there, just that they shouldn't. Which is weird. It's like, hey, if you wind up in Otherworld, try to get home as quick as you can. You figure it'd just be like, hey, don't enter those gates, please. Just don't. But what are you going to do? I guess free will is a thing. Back to comics and back to Polaris's crafting project. It's a stone ring with ten smaller sigil-filled circles around it. It's basically the X of Ten's action figure display playset. Polaris claims that she figured out the prophecy, and this will be where the ten champions of Krakoa will stand. Also, this monument was built out of Rockslide's remains, as so the as you know the prophecy required a sacrifice. And so it will also serve as a permanent memorial to him. We jump to a little bit later, and our first champion steps up. It's the wielder of the soul sword, Magic. She stands upon her sigil, and it begins to glow. One out of ten, and we're in like Flynn. We wrap up the issue with an info page and some pretty blatant hints as to who several of the remaining champions are going to be. And I mean, if you've seen any of the promotional information or read the first issue of this event crossover, this isn't a surprise. This really isn't a surprise. I mean, we have Ilyana, Cable, Cypher, Storm, Wolverine, a Braddock, maybe two, Gorgon, and Apocalypse. Those are the ones that are hinted to here or alluded to. And that's that. We are now officially one-eleventh of the way through this event. Uh, Next episode, Exitens, part three of 22... It's going to be Wolverine number six. So, ooh, X-Factor number four. I love this. I really, really enjoyed this. I'm surprised as anybody, but this was a hell of an issue. Ton of great information. The stakes were raised. The art was fantastic. This is, this is more like it. This is probably the best issue of X-Factor to this point, probably because it had nothing to do with Mojo World. But, uh... I really, really dug this. I wasn't... You know, it's been such a long time since I've read a crossover event. And I wasn't... Maybe maybe I just forgot how they work. You know, I, maybe I wasn't expecting quite as much uh, cohesiveness as we get here. Where, I mean, this is very much the next part of the story. And I don't, I don't know what I was expecting. I think, like, the last X-Men crossover I read was like a... Battle of the Atom, and I think that was a little bit different in its uh, setup. I think the different books... No, 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 I take that back. I take that back. It was the, uh, like, the Blood of Apocalypse is what it was. And uh, I think it was Blood of Apocalypse. It, it was Apocalypse 
featuring, and it was during the time where, like, Extraordinary X-Men was a thing, all new X-Men, and uh, that weird uncanny volume with the villains in it. And it was basically, it was kind of a, uh, what is it, a Fall of the Mutants sort of uh, crossover where they were all kind of branded the same thing, but they were doing their own thing. And I didn't know quite what to expect from this. I didn't know if this was going to be a MacGuffin hunt, uh, especially since we're hunting down swords. And it might eventually become a MacGuffin hunt, but I I really wasn't what I should be expecting here. Quite pleasantly surprised here. Not only do we get a wonderful... Uh, you know, second part to this story, but we also get a whole bunch of great information here. Um, I figure our main takeaway here is obviously the rules to the resurrection protocols as it pertains to deaths in Otherworld. It kind of, I mean, it kind of feels like it's a victim of the device, right? In a way where it's like we've kind of painted ourselves into a corner, now how do we make these stakes real? So we have to, it's the old Dagwood sandwich theory, right? It's like, we already have the, uh, we already have the turkey and the, and the, uh, and the lettuce and the whatever. And now we're throwing like the sliced eggs on there and we're going to, we're going to throw the, uh, the entire turkey leg on top of it. We're, we're layering upon layering upon layering, but it's building on what's been established. So it kind of subverts the usual Dagwood sandwich complaint in that this works, this makes sense, this raises the stakes and it gives us a reason to... To worry gives us a reason to invest Because, to be completely honest here We hear about a contest of champions And it's like, okay, so We'll have magic fight the Anubis-looking one And if the Anubis-looking one wins We bring magic back And then they fight the Anubis one again And if magic dies again, we bring magic back It's the, uh, it, it's the reason why I could never get into things like the Transformers Because it's just like, okay, the robot dies Build another robot it, doesn't really hold the same sort of stakes as a human or a humanoid character. So here, we know that if magic does die, if she's pitted against the Anubis horseman and is killed, well, that's the end, right? That is the end. And, I mean, of course, this is still comic books, so we have to... I think I have to say that by law. I have to, <laughs> I have to make sure that we mention that, yes, this is comics and nothing is forever, but... In the context of this era, it's a big deal if someone dies here. Uh, we have Rockslide here, who isn't uh, isn't necessarily a legacy character. He's been around for a good fifteen years now, but now he's dead, and it's not the same sort of death as we're that we've been trained to kind of just accept in these Dawn of X books, which is great. It really subverts our expectations here. As we're wa- as we're watching that scene where the five is doing their thing, I didn't expect there to be any sort of uh, issue. I didn't think that we'd get the story we got, and that's great. That's great because I just figured, okay, they're going to bring them back, and <laughs> we'll just do this again. So getting this information was just really, really cool. Polaris being the point of view character made sense in a lot of different ways here. Not only is she one of the featured characters in X Factor, which is it's really cool to see that they made the effort to have an X Factor character featured in an X Factor issue. We've all seen past crossovers where they they don't really do that sort of thing. I mean, it would be cool if we got maybe it wouldn't be so cool if we got the rest of the team here because I really don't care to see them <laughs> as often as uh, we did. But it's cool that they remembered that Polaris is a featured character in X-Factor, and here we are 
featuring Polaris. I like her feeling guilty um, over Rockslide's death, especially considering that this is the first real death of this era. Uh, real in quotes, of course, because there is a rock slide. It's just not our rock slide, or maybe it is and isn't. We're going to find out more. I'm, I'm almost positive we're going to find out more as we go on here. But I liked the, uh, I liked the focus on Polaris, her guilt over his death, her thoughts that she could have done something to stop it. We don't know what the summoner's inky black sword is made out of. Is it made out of a metal? Is it made out of a metal that can be manipulated by someone like a Polaris or a Magneto. We don't know. So for all we know, there might have been nothing she could do about it. Or there might have been a lot she could have done about it. It's really it really it really gives you something to uh, to chew on. And having Polaris kind of uh, guilt-ridden and feeling like she needs to I don't know, pay penance to uh, to Rockslide here. I, I thought that was a really neat little character beat. Her building the the little you know action figure display was pretty cool too, and understanding the prophecies. I like the way they went about this because Polaris even draws attention to it herself. She's like, you know, this was all locked into my head until my daddy yelled at me in front of people, and that's what brought it all out. And it really uh, says a lot about the Polaris-Magneto relationship and how awkward it is and how potentially standoffish it is because we've spent so many years not knowing whether or not Polaris and Magneto were related and we've, we've had the near misses where it's like, yes, they are. No, they're not. Yes, they are. No, they're not. So they've had a very complicated relationship. And here they are trying to accept the fact that they are, you know, blood relatives here. But Magneto is still Magneto. And he's, you know, he's kind of a dick. So he's yelling at his daughter here. He expects so much. If you remember, the reason she was even on this little excursion to begin with is because Magneto wanted someone from the House of M there to make the House of M look strong. And here, in front of all of his peers in the Quiet Council, Polaris can't figure out the prophecy, so he just loses it. And he yells at her, and he humiliates her, and he embarrasses her, and that's what triggers the prophecies to all sort of fall into place. She seizes up and just starts talking. And uh, I thought that was a wonderful scene. A really, really good scene. This, really, I can't say enough good things about this issue, and it shocks me. Um, I wasn't expecting to be quite this invested quite this soon. And here we are. I mean, maybe it's because we didn't have a whole lot of time in Otherworld, and this really was character-focused. We got to we got to deal with our X-Men characters, who we don't really get the character spotlights that much anymore. There's so much story and so much world-building that something like this, which is very much not a Lobdell Quiet issue... In comparison, kind of is, because we do get to focus on the characters and their interactions and their... Just we get to get inside of them. And uh, I thought this was very, very well done. And a sign that uh, any misgivings I might have had about Leia Williams and her writing in the past few issues of X-Factor were, I guess, context-sensitive, right? Because this didn't feel like someone was writing... You know, Twitter posts. This felt like an actual comic script, and it was wonderful. It's really, really good. Uh, the art, really, really enjoyed it. It felt more traditional than what we usually get from David Baldion. And while I am coming around to Baldion's style, this felt much more familiar to me. Like this could have been, 
This could have been a late 90s book from some of the art here, and I really dug that just as a, as a guy who, you know, that's my wheelhouse. So that was cool. It was really neat to see that. I, when I first saw that it was a different artist, I kind of... I kind of winced because it's like, oh man, is this is this going to be like an afterthought issue? You know, I mean, why isn't our regular artist on this? Uh, but this was really, really good, really good stuff. So I'm, you know, I came out of the first issue neutral. You know, I came out of Exus Swords creation neutral. Here we are, part two, and I am definitely on an upward trend here. I'm looking forward to more. I uh, just can't wait to can't wait to dig in deeper. Uh, We'll see if my opinion changes once we actually get to Otherworld, which uh, <laughs> you know how I am with Otherworld. But we're going to enjoy the ride as long as we can, and I am definitely still enjoying it. So X-Factor number four gets the big X-lapsed thumbs up for, uh, I think, that and $5 will get you a cup of coffee at a gas station. So that's all I got to say about X-Factor number four. Let's jump right into the mailbag here. We are going to start with Damien, who's talking about Hellions number four. And that's a an issue I've talked probably way too much about over the past few weeks here. But let's hear what Damien says about it. He says, wow, you really got my little brain whizzing with your thoughts about life, death, and legacy in this episode. Madeline Pryor is a fascinating character, and her existential concerns are completely justified within continuity. She's the perfect character to explore themes of free will and determinism. Did she freely love Scott Summers, or was she solely compelled to by Sinister's reprogramming? Did Scott love her, or did she influence him with her tel- with the telepathy she didn't even know she possessed? The Inferno retcons put a question mark over every element of her life. Absolutely. Absolutely. We don't know. She doesn't know. Nobody knows exactly what, what her life was, uh, which, I mean, just really amps up the tragedy of it. Damien continues, Wells is very cleverly picking up on these questions, and I think there's even a metatextual element. Maddie was a real character with real impact on the story of the X-Men, who had to be changed in order to make Cyclops back into a viable character after the launch of X-Factor. If she had remained the woman she had been, then Cyclops was a bad guy, and Cyclops had to be a hero. Absolutely. Absolutely. I don't know... You know, I, I, it's almost got to be out there somewhere what Claremont's original plans for Madeline Pryor were. I wonder if they were always the way they wound up being. Because, uh, I, I mean, of course, she's basically a carbon copy of Jean in looks, right? So there had to have been another shoe waiting to drop there. But I wonder if it was going to be something like this. Because at the time of her introduction, I don't think anybody saw Jean coming back anytime soon. I mean, that was before the, uh, the, you know, the Kurt Busiek, uh, you know, Jamaica Bay retcon, right? The Cocoon retcon. Nobody really knew about that yet, and there was no other way to bring her back where she wouldn't be seen as a villain because she had fried the, uh, the asparagus people. So I got to wonder what the original plans might have been, and somebody, somebody's must, somebody must have asked this. I'm going to have to do a little bit of digging to see if I could find some stuff out. If anybody knows, please, please let us know. Uh, Damien continues, What I find most interesting is what is not mentioned. People often talk about your legacy being your children. Those of us who are not parents are often thought of as lesser contributors to society as we are not creating the future. It's notable that Cable is not seen as proof of Madeline's existence. 
I suppose she might not she might see him as more of a product of Sinister's manipulations than of her. Now that is the like the main wrinkle in her crisis, right? Because she did birth baby Nathan. You know, Nathan is a product of her and is a sure sign that she did in fact exist. So that is a weird one. Then again, we have Cable calling Jean Grey mom. So, I mean, it's... Has he just uh, disowned his actual birth mother? It's it's very, very weird. Uh, Damien continues, It really is phenomenal that Wells is able to put so much psychological depth into what is ultimately a campy, violent action-adventure story. He really makes me feel for Maddie. I suppose it's logical that the damaged team would fight damaged villains. And I agree 100%. I never ever expected this to be so deep and so psychological and just so something we could actually chew on i really thought and i mean i've been trying not to and every time i say that i'm trying not to i always just say it anyway i i was trying not to see this as you know the x-men's answer to the suicide squad i thought it was going to be just like that and uh no it's not well kind of is but uh not not completely uh, Damien continues, The ultimate decision by the Quiet Council not to resurrect Maddie is like a knife in my guts. The fact that they don't see her as real when all she wanted was to be acknowledged is heartbreaking. I have no doubt that Scott argued for her resurrection, but I do wonder how the various council members would have voted. As you say, it's probably best that we don't see their deliberations and have to construct them for ourselves. Masterful storytelling in not showing us that scene. You know, one of the, this is... This is one of those times where not seeing a scene makes it more effective than actually, you know, seeing it. Um, I was recently watching, I mean, totally, totally in the weeds here, but I was just watching a discussion and analysis of uh, Last House on the Left. And uh, for folks who don't know, that's a, you know, an early Wes Craven movie. Um, really twisted stuff from uh, the I think 1971, 1972-ish. I did a little bit of research on this when Reggie and I were talking about the video nasties for uh, an episode of the Cosmic Treadmill After Dark, and there's a scene in there where one of the bad guys has a dream, and uh, the dream is that he's laid out on a table, and the uh, the parents of the of the girl who they did stuff to have him strapped down to this table. And the father, I believe he was a dentist, he puts a chisel up to his front teeth and has a mallet. And, you know, the implication is going to knock his teeth out, right? Of course. But they don't show it. They just, they just, they just, you just hear it. You know, you don't see it, which makes it just so much more visceral (laughs) because you don't see it and you can't put, I don't know, you just can't manifest it visually. I think the scene here with the Quiet Council is completely different than that, but in the same sort of vein, where it's like, it's so much more powerful where we have to try to figure out, like, like what did Jean say? You know, this is her clone. What did she say? Does she value it? And, and Jean's died a couple of times since Dawn of X started, and she's in cloned bodies, so is she... What's the difference between a cloned Jean Grey and the clone of Jean Grey? A lot of interesting stuff there, and I'm just so happy we didn't see it, because I think that would have ruined it. So really, really good stuff. Damien continues. 
The fact that Grey Crow has to wait for the original Marauders to be resurrected does make me wonder how Kid Omega keeps jumping the queue. Do they really think he's vital to, to Krakoa? I... <laughs> well, he's there for the joke, right? We need him every issue to die. Um, I, I, I wonder if the fact that Kid Omega is an Omega-level mutant maybe puts... Maybe punches his ticket, makes it a little bit quicker here. I mean, that's my headcanon, uh, and it kind of makes sense. I mean, they need as many Omega-level mutants, you know, trotting around the island as possible, so stands to reason. And also, you know, I, I heard that Kid Omega is part of the mutant CIA, which probably makes him a little important. Uh, Damien continues, The close of this issue with Nanny threatening Sinister is a great scene. I love seeing things seeded for future stories. It's so Claremontian. I feel like I'm going to be reading this book for years. Post X of Tens, the only books I'm still buying are Marauders and Hellions. Can you believe the man that hated Fallen Angels with so much passion is loving a book featuring Quanon? I wouldn't have believed it. Yeah, me either. Um, I immediately, upon seeing the, the first solicits for Hellions, or maybe it wasn't the solicits, maybe it was when they first showed up in my DCBS bin. I, I don't remember when I first noticed that Quanon was part of it. But I remember after reading the first issue of Fallen Angels and then seeing that Quanon was on Hellions, I, I assumed that Hellions was like the follow-up to Fallen Angels. And I suppose in, in a couple of ways it, it sort of is. But I was expecting a more direct sort of follow-up where it would be a lot more of the same. So it's really, really good that it's not. <laughs> now, Damien wraps up with, Anyway, until Quanon has to house-train Wildchild, make my next lapsed. And that's a scene. That, that's a scene I could actually see. So let's keep our fingers crossed that that doesn't happen. But uh, thank you so much for your thoughts on Hellions number four, and for and for adding to the to the discussion for this one because I think I think this is this is an issue that this is a special issue. This is a special issue that talks about a lot of things that we don't really think about. Um, I think I think Hellions. This first arc of Hellions is going to be. One of those sleepers that we keep coming back to and keep referring to because it subverted so many of our expectations and it made us think and it made us ask a lot of questions, a lot of inconvenient and uncomfortable questions about the setup of the Quiet Council, the setup of the Resurrection Protocols, just the laws of uh, the early laws of Krakoa. I think uh, this is a goodie. This is a goodie. So I really appreciate you adding your thoughts to it, Damien. Uh, next, Andrew Franklin talking about X-Factor number three. He says, Seems like I like this issue more than most of us. I felt like this one had more meat than last issue, which was really just all set up. This issue's streaming content seemed less offensive, or at least in con- the context in which it was used. Spiral Showcase and Shatterstar's WWF Jamboree seemed less gratuitous. I'm not super excited to spend another issue in the Mojoverse, but I'm not put off the book entirely. I agree. I agree. There was definitely this was definitely uh, less offensive to me <laughs> as a uh, as a man in my very early forties uh, who doesn't want to see you know text speak or, or Twitter speak in my uh, in my comic panels. Um, the issue number two was that was a toughie. That was a toughie. Issue three. I don't know if I was expecting like I had really low expectations or if I was just pleasantly surprised, but it was uh, it was okay. It was okay. Uh, Andrew continues. I really liked the da- the Dakin Dakin scene this issue, 
After the last two issues, I was ready to ditch this guy as nothing but William's bisexual joke character, but I was pleasantly surprised to see some actual character work in this issue. You said it yourself, it was really great to see that he was actually trying to further the investigation from the first issue. And I gotta admit, dude is charming. It was also fun that we got a real answer as to why he never wears a shirt. I, I don't think I made mention of... Dakin and Dakin's sh- lack of shirtage during that discussion, but uh, it's because he's uh, he's like climactically clim- climat- climatologically perfect. He he's never hot and he's never cold. <laughs> he doesn't need clothes. He always adapts. Uh, but the Dakin Dakin scene was probably the strongest part of that issue. Um, I and you're 100 percent dead on here. He is charming. He is charming here, and he's trying to. Not so much woo Aurora, but I guess in a way woo her because he wants answers. He wants to get something from her. Not what we expect for him to want to get from her, which is, you know, something physical and or uh, superficially romantic, I guess. But uh, actually tied into the X Factor investigation, which we see set her off and she bolted. So uh, made her uncomfortable, but... Uh, any kind of characterization we can give to old Dakin Dakin is good by me, and a uh, very, very strong scene. Very strong scene. Andrew continues, Hearing your indignation over three info pages in a row made me start to think about them in terms of commercial breaks. If three info pages are spaced out throughout the issue, do they seem less intrusive? Would you rather deal with commercial breaks throughout an episode or watch all the ads in a big chunk before or after the program? I'm clearly overthinking things, but I wonder if they decided to do three pages in sequence at the end to mirror the way some of the ads are played on YouTube. Thematic, if true. I think we might be giving them a little bit too much credit. I'd like to think that that's why they did it, but uh, I don't know. (laughs) Sometimes we've seen just big old chunks of info pages here um, throughout these books, and they're just not... Uh, they're, for me, they are a hurdle. Uh, not that they're not interesting. Not that they're not... Well, some of them aren't, but uh, not that they're not vital, though some of them aren't. It just feels like a way to... Sometimes it just feels like padding. And in this case, it was just like, here's a lot of information, and we had nowhere else to put it, so here it is, all at once. And for me, that it really turned me off. I started reading it a few times, and I was just like, I can't do it. Can't do it. Nope, doubt. Andrew continues. On the pages themselves, I thought they were more interesting than these pages often are. The first shed some light on Shatterstar's efforts to communicate outside the Mojoverse. It's pretty sad stuff and does make me more curious about his story. The second one is Aurora logging her work, viewing the Mojoverse cable channels. The most interesting bit in here is that Adam X has the fifth most popular stream, where he reacts to watching vids of people being killed. I don't know if that's a joke or a story seed, but I thought it was an interesting thing to include. I think that was probably a joke. Um, to me, Adam X has become that character that X-Men writers like to include as the funny haha and as the, hey, look at this, look at this guy that I know about. Look, look at this character that I know about. He's silly, isn't he? Point and laugh. It's kind of like when... Uh, when Tom King shoved uh, the protector from the New Teen Titans drug awareness specials into Heroes in Crisis. It was just kind of like a funny haha. It's like, hey, look at the research I did. I-, I know that this character exists. And I'm clearly, clearly projecting. But to me, when I see something like that and they're treated 
in a kind of throwaway sort of way, it makes me just, it turns me off and it just makes me question why. And it usually comes down to funny haha, lol random. In my head, anyway. I could be completely off base. Andrew continues. Since this is the last of the Wave 2 number 3s, it's time to put them in the deathmatch ring and smash that like button. Cable definitely gets the win this round, and surprisingly, X-Factor takes the number 2 spot while Hellions places a very respectable third, but has a very high projection for the next round. And as always, I did not read Wolverine. (laughs) Well, this is number 3. Wolverine number 3. Did we like that one? No, no, we did not. That uh, That was with the... The end of the Pale Girl uh, storyline, which was not fantastic. Wolverine number four was decent. Wolverine number three, not so great. Andrew wraps up with, that's all from me. So until the network demands that Cousin X show up to help raise the ratings, make mine X lapsed. Well, thank you so much for sharing your thoughts on on an issue that uh, I was kind of wibbly-wobbly on. It's, it's always cool to, to get some other uh, points of view and to, uh, to learn something about something that... Uh, Maybe I didn't pay much attention to, like these info pages here. While I didn't read them, it's cool that uh, it's cool that we get the information as to what happened because I I did not do my job in in sharing that during the episode. So thank you so much, Andrew. Next up, our friend Jesse D. Young here talking about the resurrection protocols and answering some questions that we posed not too long ago. He says, "Good evening, Chris. I hope your move is going well." Oh boy, um, <laughs> not to get. Too deep into the weeds here. Uh, moving is just something I do far too often, and uh, it. I hate using the word trigger because it's just one of those things that's so overused to the point of abuse these days, where it's meaningless. But uh, moving for me uh, triggers a lot of uh, odd emotions and odd sensations. So uh, it hasn't been the easiest thing in the world for me. I, I tend to make things more difficult than they need to be. Uh, in in podcasting and real life, apparently. So uh, it's been it's been a rough few weeks here. It's been a rough few weeks, and uh, honestly, putting together this program has been a source of escape for me uh, over the past probably since Christmas. Uh, that's when it really started to hit me that uh, that this move was happening and that I'd have to actually do it. So uh, it's been rough, but uh, it's it's all moving along here, and hopefully. Hopefully within the next week or so, it'll be it'll be a done deal. Because we're not moving far, so it's kind of like we're keeping two residences now. So we'll see. We'll see. Hopefully soon enough it'll be behind us. Jesse continues. I have just a few things this wintry Utah night before I head to bed. First, I think Explody Boy reforms himself after he blows up, kind of like Nitro, that villain who pretty much started Civil War. Starts like It sounds like most people think it's a suicide run when he blows up, but it's really just a waiting period until he reforms. This is probably why Beast sends him, because he can jetpack his way into the, into the plant thing, blow it up, and everything will be great. I'm still not a fan of his name, though. I'm sure he could have been known as Boom Boom or Boomer or Meltdown, but I think someone already took those names. Someone who apparently has a co- is a code name hog. Now, that's that's a great point here, and I wonder if we'll ever see anything that, like corroborates it, right? Like seeing him come back or is he is he gone? I mean, we I don't know if we see him again. Is a thing. I don't know if he was just the, you know, the funny haha character for for the Empire cash in or if we're going to just see him in the background uh, somewhere down the line. Never know. We never know. Jesse continues. 
Second, to answer yours and I think Evan's question, no, it's not common knowledge in the Marvel Universe that Marvels can be brought back from the dead. The Avengers don't know because She-Hulk had no idea when Wolverine offed a mutant in the immortal She-Hulk one-shot, and she is an active Avenger. I wouldn't be surprised if the Fantastic Four know because of the reasons you stated about Franklin being on the island, but I don't know for sure if they've said anything since I'm a little behind on Fantastic Four right now. It doesn't sound like the Russians or those cartel guys know anything about it or even Docs. I haven't read anything in the other titles I get, so if they do know, it's not being said. But that would be a big deal to ignore if they did know. Well, that's that's great information here. I wasn't sure because it's just... Like I said uh, during the, uh, I don't remember which episode I discussed, the, or I posed this question in, I didn't know that Professor X wasn't a uh, outed mutant when Morrison outed him as a mutant. I, I <laughs> It seemed like one of those things that I just figured everybody knew. So, uh, I don't know, I guess that's just the dissonance between what the reader knows and what the world inside the books know, you know? But if that's the case, that makes perfect sense as to why Wanda would... You know, try to raise the dead Because she doesn't know that the the X-Men could do that So that's one complaint About X-Men Empire colon X-Men that I can actually Scrape off the list here Uh, Jesse continues Third, yes, please continue on Juggernaut The story is not written for a college Professor to crack and the art is pretty good I've always liked Garney And this new direction and style that he did in his Daredevil run has grown on me It's a nice cleansing from the heavy matter in the actual X titles. So yeah, please continue with the series after multiplication of swords. And yes, I think we will. I think we will, because I did enjoy it. Uh, And like you said here, it's just, it's a nice palate cleanser. You know, Uh, it's not heavy. It's not trying to be anything it's not. It's just, it's a nice redemption story. At least that's what I'm getting from it now, is that it's a redemption story for the Juggernaut. He's clearly... Changed his uh, his point of view since being you know lost in limbo, and uh, I you know I have a lot of questions like how did he get his uh, how did he get his new armor because we know he's in new armor, does he still have the Gemasiderac? How did he get it back? I think we're gonna get those answers during that mini series, and you know it's it's tangentially related enough to our Dawn of X books or whatever was it what is it Reign of X whatever the hell it's gonna be after uh, X attends here. So I think we can do that. I think we could do that as a nice palate cleanse. We'll pepper them in after uh, Multiplication of Swords wraps up. And Jesse wraps up with, Congrats on five years with Chris's on Infinite Earths. And until you start putting milk on your cereal, make mine X last. <laughs> you remembered. You remembered. I, I don't I don't have cereal with milk. I, I think that that's probably one of the more vile things in the world. And that probably stems from my childhood. And... Uh, I want to say seeing uh, Fruity Pebbles, like, cemented to a bowl made me want to retch. And so I, I, I always eat my cereal dry. And I probably mentioned that on an episode of Chris's on Infinite Earths ages ago. So it's <laughs> pretty wild to see a reference to it. But thank you so, so much, Jesse. That made me uh, laugh more than I was expecting to when I, when I first saw the message. Uh, we're going to wrap up with a, a letter from our friend Evan Bevins talking about... More Empire. This is going to be X-Men number 11. He says, I'm glad you liked X-Men number 11. I thought it was a very good issue, and it delivered exactly what I want from a company-wide crossover issue. A solid story that advances the ongoing themes in the book without requiring you to read or know anything about the event. I can think of a few times I've dropped a series I'd been collecting because to follow the story would have required me to buy several additional titles. 
I know marketing more than storytelling drives a lot of these strategies, but it usually makes me buy less, not more. You don't have to read X-Men 11 to understand Empire, but it does add something. With the Cliff Notes details on Empire in the issue, you don't have to read any other Empire material for the issue to work, but you certainly can if you want to know more. Absolutely. Absolutely. That was a shock when we read X-Men Volume 5, Number 11, and saw that it was both an X, X of Swords and Empire tie-in. It was like, whoa, that's, that's a, uh, a, weird, a weird combination there. But it was really good. And as I mentioned during that discussion, I think that should have been the only, uh, you know, a Empire tie-in the X-Men suffered or put us through. Because the limited series was not great. X-Men number 10 with Vulcan uh, and his friends getting drunk on the moon was not great. But X-Men number 11 was really, really good. It was really good, and it was everything it needed to be. It was everything the entire Empire-X-Men connection ever needed to be. It was really good. Really, really good. Evan continues, As for Exodus, I wonder if Nightcrawler realizes how far behind he is on creating a mutant religion. At this rate, Kurt's followers may have to be (laughs) ex-Protestants. Exodus does seem sinister in his work with the youth. But as much as I've been surprised by Professor X and company seeming to compromise by accepting all these villains into the fold, I suppose the opposite could be true. Perhaps being given a clean slate and working alongside heroes is giving Magneto, Exodus, and even Apocalypse a chance to be better, to advance the nobler aspects of their causes. They can be pulled up, even as we think the X-Men are being pulled down. Totally true. Totally true here. Um, I really enjoyed the Exodus scenes here. Um, I think Exodus is really coming coming into his own as a character here, where... I don't know that I ever looked at him as being 100% evil. Even back in the day, I think he... Did he show up during... I think he showed up early in Fatal Attractions. Um, I think he... I want to say it was the X-Factor issue of Fatal Attractions where he was looking for Quicksilver, who was at that point still Magneto's son. But I never saw him as 100% evil. And then we saw him in the Age of Apocalypse where he was an X-Man. Right, So I, I've always had a, a, a weird fondness for Exodus. So seeing him here in this role, I talked about the slippery slope in that issue, I believe. Because everything he's saying here, it's being presented to the reader as though he's indoctrinating the youth, right? He, he does, like you said here, he does seem sinister in the work here. But he's not saying anything false. He's not lying. He's not even exaggerating. He's basically giving a dry recap of what the mutants have had to deal with. And it's, uh, it's really interesting here. The juxtaposition of the, of the sinister and agenda-driven sort of presentation, while all he's doing is saying the truth. He basically, you know, he could be pulling out volumes of the essential X-Men from, you know, anywhere from the, the 60s to today, reading from it and being like, yeah, this is actually what happened. But the, it's all in the presentation, and it's very, very interesting. I'm really, really digging the uh, the Exodus take here. Now, Evan continues with, Also, kudos to the Summoner for being so creepy that Magneto's naked meditation session barely registered on the weirdness scale. And Rockslide probably owes the Kotati a thank you from sa- for saving him from a game of Araku Jumanji. And yeah, you know... I didn't even consider. I know I mentioned Magneto being naked, but I didn't. Men, I didn't even think of it as being weird, because everything else was so weird. So yeah, 
<laughs> Good job, Summoner, for being such a damn creep. And uh, by now, we we know poor Rockslide's fate here. Uh, maybe being sucked into a Jumanji game would have been preferable to being cut in half by the the same fella he was playing against. But uh, I guess time will tell on that uh, on that account there. But thank you so so much for sharing your thoughts on uh, that surprisingly good issue of X Men, which. Sucks to say that an issue of X-Men is surprisingly good, but this is the world we're in now. But uh, that will do it for the mailbag this time out. If anybody would like to get involved with the conversation, please, please feel free to do so. You can find me on Twitter at Ace Comics, or you can shoot me an email over at weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com. You can check out blog posts and show notes over at chrisisoninfiniteearths.com or xlapsed.chrisisoninfiniteearths.com. You can chat with us about whatever you want, over on uh, Facebook, that's the word, Facebook. 90s X-Men is our little group. And you can listen to the entire Chris and Reggie audio archives at chrisandreggie.podbean.com. And also, hey, we can vote for the last member of the new X-Men team over at marvel.com from now until February 2nd. And we talked about that a little bit last episode, but just go to marvel.com. There should be a link right there on top of the page where we can vote and see who the final member of the first X-Men team of the Dawn of X world is going to be. We get a say in it, and uh, I definitely encourage you all to vote. And even, you know, let me know who you voted for or who you didn't vote for, and we can talk about it here on the show. So marvel.com, wherever it is there. I'll try to remember to link to it in the show notes, but uh, uh, that usually only works about 20% of the time, because I usually forget. But Marvel.com, go there. Uh, That'll do it for this episode here. I want to thank you all so, so much for sharing your time with me and for sticking around long enough for us to get into X of Tens here. It really, really means the world to me. So thank you all so, so much. And until next time, as always, I'll talk to you all again real soon. See ya. Searching for the real thing Living life